question for the day. What does angst, a flying moose, and industrial light and magic have in common? Well, the answer is our guest, the quadruple threat writer, director, actor, and digital film producer, Jonathan Luskin. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Diana. It's delightful to have you here today. Now, sitting in with us, we have Christopher DeYoung, Trish Tillman, and Dan Wilson. Radio Star, which brings you these lovely interviews, had the pleasure of recording a great deal of your work recently. And uh, when you first came in, we did your your homage to the apocalypse, as it were. They're all very apocalyptic in theme. I had the pleasure of pa- playing Man's Best Friend and won the Alamo. Now, that play, the Alamo, what did you write that for? That was uh, part of uh, the playground? It, it was a playground play. It was, um, oh, I think it was one of those math topics, um, zero-sum game. I think is what it was. Wonderful. You, you know what a zero-sum game is. But. Just a quick question for those of us uh, who are not in San Francisco. What is Playground? That's exactly what my next question is going to be. Well, we're so good about that. Dan yes. Wilson in the house. Playground. Playground is um, it's an organization that's been around for about 10 years. There's a group of 36 writers. They have to compete to get into this pool of 36 writers. There's about 100 people apply every year. You have to keep reapplying. The 36 writers um, write a short play once a month for six months, and the way that happens is on a Friday morning, you get an email uh, with a topic. So the topic might be zero-sum game. And on the next Tuesday, four and a half days later, you have to um, email back a 10-page play. And then they, out of the 36 plays they get in, they choose six of them, and they have a staged reading at Berkeley Rep. At the end of six months, they take seven of the plays, and they put on a full-stage production of the plays. In a Fantastic. Festival. Now, you so. have experienced the full-stage production, correct? Yeah. I've, I've, I've done this for four years, and I've been in the festival, and I've had the stage readings and all that. But, I mean, it goes up and down. You, you could One year, you could have three. One year, you could have none. What's the most you, you know? had in one? Three. Three? All right. Is that the most? Oh, of anyone? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. There's some people who have had four... At least four, maybe five. I don't know. Well, we'll have them taken out. <laughs> yeah. We want you to be the top dog. <clears throat> but, you know, if you do it long enough, you get so used to rejection <laughs> every single month that um, it's really not the most important thing. The most important thing is you write. I have 25, 30 plays now, some of them not as good as others, but they're, they're beginnings of plays, at least. And That's all the, the several short pieces we've done, are these all playground pieces? Uh, is that why they're all approximately the same length? They might be all playground pieces. Yeah, I have a few other short plays which aren't playground, but I think these are playground pieces. Fantastic. Now, um, as a writer, I've talked to a couple of other writers about this, and there seems to be this recurring theme they find in their work. Do you find that for yourself? I'm just discovering it. Really? Because, well, Radio Star putting together all these plays, Mm -hmm. and I have another opportunity coming up... um, at the Throckmorton Theater, which I can plug here. Absolutely. On April 26, I'm having eight of my plays put on in a stage reading. Um, that's 142 Throckmorton Avenue in Mill Valley. Um, I, I don't know what it is until I sort of step back and look at it. Right. You know, to me, the reason I chose these plays is um, I think they're my better plays because they sound like me. That's what Heidi tells me when I write a play. <laughs> She'll look at it and say, well, this isn't very good. It doesn't sound like you. Or this is good because it sounds like you. So that's my struggle is to try to make something which is my voice. And it takes a lot to get there. You're sure. a writer, so you know. You know. Um, now you write, you direct, you act, and you are a digital filmmaker. You have your own company, and uh, that's Flying Moose Pictures. I do. I don't really act. I've been on stage, but I don't really 
I'm not really an actor. So you more <laughs> you you studied acting as to have an understanding of what the actors are going through when you direct them and you write for them. Yeah, and I, actually, I, I keep thinking if I get the time, I'd like to you know carry a spear in somebody's production and just be on the side <laughs> because I'll um, call you. Yeah, if we get a chance for <laughs> yeah. that. Chris played uh, a role that was a traditional spear carrier. What was the name of that character we were doing? Uh, George Spelvin. Yes, George Spelvin, and um, what was the other one? Uh, Walter Plinge, Walter which Plinge. was actually the very first of the Radio Star Off the Page series yeah. to go up. Actually, That's right. By uh, Trevor Allen. It was called Intermission, and it was about two spear carrier actors <laughs> having a fight between acts at a play. Now, you're in a play right now, Chris, with, uh, with Deb Wade, and she talks about never, as a writer, never wanting to put roles in that are spear carriers. She only wants very meaty roles. So where do you stand on that? I mean, do you think there's a necessity to have those roles in plays? Well, one of the tests I'll do with a scene is um, take a character out and see if it makes a difference. If it doesn't make a difference, the character should be there. If the character's there, it should make a difference. So that's the rule I'd follow. Um, not some sort of overarching theory that there shouldn't be small roles. <laughs> I've seen plays where the most powerful role is a role that's silent with no dialogue. Or, <clears throat> and how many times have you seen a play where um, the memorable character is some smaller role, which is made a gem? That's it's true. something that it's very difficult for actors sometimes to understand that um, if they are new to a theater company, they come in and they get a small role and they do a wonderful job for it, that's you know, the best resume you could ever have. Yeah, to do that. Sometimes people steal the play with yeah. a, a lovely little turn. I'm, but, I'm, it's a film, but I'm thinking of Mark Wahlberg and The Departed. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Oh, see okay. It was an example of what you're saying. He's yeah. a very small part, and he was just he tore the screen off the hinges with it. Well, it's the whole thing about there are no small roles, only small actors. It's kind of <laughs> an adage that we all hear in the theater, and everyone's like, "Oh yes, yes, yes." And you get a small role, you're like, "Ah, oh, God." Yeah. But it is, it is the case. I mean, you do have folks who have, have walked on and just, you know, they come in. Well, I, I played um, Schmendemann in Picasso, which is like literally you're on for about a page and a half. You walk in, boom, and then you're gone. But it's like a character that no one ever forgets, which is Steve Martin's piece, which is very, very popular. But it's a good example yeah. of that, of you it, walk in and you just, start, you just sparkle. It's also related to that... Um, just because you don't have lines doesn't mean that it's a small role. Exactly. Another actor thing. Um, but just the reason I, like, I do like to do a little bit of acting, um, it does teach you a lot as a director. I mean, I think what you learn is the main task of an actor is to be on stage and to listen to the other actors and to work through the scene. And what actors need is they need the time to do that, which, which leads you as a director to try to be less intrusive. Hmm. You know, usually you're not under the pressure of Radio Star where you only have, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> two seconds to rehearse. But um, I think it does teach you to kind of let pe people, um, you know, find, find them. I was assistant director at a, on a production at ACT, a very child. And, um, you know, they have an equity sort of uh, rehearsal schedule, which is really long. It's like six or eight weeks of six hours a day. It's really right. tremendous amount of rehearsal time. And the director would just let some characters kind of, you know, bounce around in the corner for three or four days with completely inappropriate blocking, <laughs> just so they could discover what they really needed to by themselves, which is so much better than, you know, telling somebody something, have someone discover it. Right. Absolutely. So, I have a question about time that I'm interested in, but about process, because Playground sounds to me like it's, with, it's four days, right? So you only have amount of time. Do you work better with a short amount of time or... Do you have plays you've been working on for years, or like this equity thing? Would you like to bounce around in your head for however long? I love deadlines. 
<laughs> I would like I like short deadlines. I'm working on a um, I have a small commission from the Magic Theater for this play on nanotechnology and. Our deadlines have been months and months apart, and it's been the worst thing. In fact, <laughs> it's finally due. It's due on the 16th, which is an extension of a previous deadline, and I don't have a play. <laughs> <laughs> You're not yeah. alone in that. That seems to be such a recurring theme. Yeah. Um, when I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing uh, Neil Gaiman, I asked him, uh, you know, how do you deal with deadlines? And he said, I don't think I would get anything done if it weren't for having a deadline. They're your friends. Yeah. Deadlines are your friends. Do you uh, give yourself a certain amount that you need to write every day? Do you? Some actors talk about they spend at least 15 minutes. I mean, excuse me, writers say they spend at least 15 minutes a day trying to just put something down. Well, let's do things. No, because <laughs> my, as you alluded to, you know, I have this business of, that takes up my life. Yes. You know, we work all the, I work today. You know, it's, it's Sunday and we work today. We work all the time. Um, the other thing is I find that the more I write, the less I physically write and the more I think. Oh. I need to, because, you know, the actual dialogue and writing mm -hmm. it down, in some ways that's a procrastination. That's polishing. That's easy. What really, I think, is drives the drama is what are, you know, what's underneath? What are the stakes? What do people want? What are the strategies they use to get that? All those really important things which have nothing to do with dialogue. They're, you know, the basic dramatic structure that's underneath it. And so um, my writing process, if you did a time lapse of me writing, <laughs> it would be this frenetic bee thing where I'd be running out to flowers all the time. I'd be just running out of the room and walking around. <laughs> I do. I, so living is, your, is how you write. I try to force myself to think about what I'm writing at other times, you know, like if I'm driving somewhere or whatever. Try to what was the myself. first thing you wrote? You mean like ever? The first fully completed play you ever wrote. Well, okay, I really, I, I more seriously got into writing probably 10 years ago. I took a class uh, with Will Dunn mm -hmm. here, dramatic writing. Um, I wrote a play, and I actually finished it. It was a full-length play about a, um, about a computer who's more human than all the people around him, that kind of thing. But my second play, really, I would say, was my first complete, well-crafted play. It's a, it's a flawed play, but it's, it's a good play. It's a play that I'll go back and rewrite. It's called Inner Monkey. It's about, <laughs> it's about um, a couple that's very much into drama therapy, you know, mm -hmm. for their relationship. And they, the therapist sends them off into the woods, into the mountains. Oh and they play drama therapy games in the mountains. There's a ranger who's a third character. The wife has an affair with the ranger. Fabulous. Um, and the guy goes out and he, he can't emotionally open himself up to his wife, but he talks to fish. <laughs> Do the fish answer back. Yeah. The fish monologue is the best part of the play, actually. <laughs> now, you talked about in Playground, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but in Playground, they'll give you a theme. And today we uh, recorded, and you'll be hearing this uh, in the months upcoming, we recorded a piece that you said the theme was based on. Um, oh, the Martin Luther King thing? Yeah, yeah. would you share that? <clears throat> so Care Not Cash is the name of the play, and the topic that month was I've been to the mountaintop, which it was a February play. I think that's what Martin Luther King mm -hmm. Day is, right? So that's a quote from a Martin Luther King speech, which is a quote from the Bible, which is, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. So um, in this case, the character goes up an elevator in Nordstrom to try on furs, and she has a, she has a lot of champagne and chocolate and has a hallucinatory experience where <laughs> she sees an angel, and it changes her life in a small way. 
That's very cool. Now, Jonathan, you are, uh, we'll take out one of those threats, so that at least makes you a triple threat with being a writer, a director, and a digital filmmaker. You actually were responsible for the inception of the digital animation uh, department at ILM. Is that correct? Well, maybe that's overstating a little. Um, in, boy, this is a long time ago. In 1986, um, <clears throat> you know, George Lucas had put all this money into Pixar, which was mm -hmm. a d the computer division of ILM. Um, they did a lot of things, but what they didn't do is focus on the actual tools needed for digital effects for movies. Right. They were into making little animated movies for themselves. So he sold them off to Steve Jobs, as okay. is well known, and they started a new department there. So there were already two employees, um, my bosses, they, I had twin bosses. I was the third employee. Oh. I didn't want to come to California. I was living in New York. I had a New Yorker's view of California. <laughs> <laughs> You know that Steinberg picture that ends oh, at Hudson River? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like Hudson and then Japan. That's right. That's yeah. <laughs> Has your view of California changed in the, <laughs> in the yeah. coming, in the years then? Yeah. You know, when I first got here, I did what all the transplants do. They compare. You know, oh, you can't get a good deli sandwich. You know, you go to a deli and it's like, what do you want? Every Everything. East Coaster yeah. I know says yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I had this epiphany where I decided <laughs> if you're going to be in California, you have to become a Californian. So I started surfing. Right on. And sea kayaking and skiing and, um, you know, uh, what else does one do in California? Yoga? Organic no. Tantra? Organic, oh, completely into the, you know, local, seasonal, unwaxed, organic food. <laughs> we do have oh, the yeah. best food here. Uh, a mutual friend of all of ours, I'll, I'll drop his name, Matthew Quinn, he went out for his birthday and he and his wife really enjoy going out. And they were going to um, uh, a suburban theme house. I won't drop the name of it. But he said, you can't lose. You're in California. You got good produce. What's the worst that can happen? And it's true. We have probably the best produce anywhere. But that said, that I said, go back to the East Coast several times a year. My whole family's back there. And um, I like to say San Francisco is a good place to come back to because it's when you come back, it's like a nice little warm home, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is a village. I mean, it's so small. It really is. It's so small. But it's adorable. You know, you can, I'm sure none of you can go to the theater without seeing someone you know or knowing someone in the cast or no, the crew. No, it's impossible. No, very true. It's just <clears throat> impossible. It's such a small little community. Now, since you are a digital filmmaker, I have to ask you this. What, uh, what do you think the impact on acting and writing, um, the digital technology revolution, our cell phones delivering us movies, what's mm. the future for actors and writers as Ooh, a result of that? It's changing really fast. Very fast. Um, there's a lot of impacts. I'm really interested in this, actually. Mm -hmm. um, the first impact, I think, strangely enough, is to make films more theatrical. And what I mean by that is um, since, you know, even with, you know, unless you're going to get a $80,000 digital camera, your digital technology is going to favor close-ups. It's going to favor talking heads. It's going to favor movies where people talk, which is more theatrical. Since film is now cheap, you don't have to, you know, it's not photochemical silver, rare right. metals. It's, it's just tape, or it, our cameras now are tapeless. Um, you can do improvisation. You can have a Christopher Guest type of structured improvisational film which I'm very interested in. I know you guys are all interested in that. Um, it's also, there's a great freedom now that distribution has opened up. You no longer have to say, well, the only legitimate movie is 90 to 120 minutes because people are paying $10 and they need a certain value for their entertainment dollar. Right. Well, that's not true anymore. You can now have a micropayment through PayPal or free or whatever, you know. No, absolutely. Um, 
you can have a movie which is 11 minutes long because you have an 11 minute story mm-hmm. and it can be you know a vertical 16-9 skewed aspect ratio if you like that because you know like I, I did um, I directed Henceforward this Alan Akeborn play and mm-hmm. it has a lot of video in it we decided that the um, the video phone messages of the future would be a 69 frame turned on its side, tall and thin, because that's the shape of the human body, and that's the message you're giving. Oh, of course. So there's all these freedoms now. Plus, um, I think there's this relentless thing that as things get more convenient, people will trade convenience for sort of quality. Right. So Look at you'll, YouTube. You know, <laughs> well, it explains VHS tape. Yes, it you does. Know, it explains YouTube, which is you know, terrible, terrible image quality, but it makes up for that in so many other ways. It's immediate. McDonald's. Everyone's not there. McDonald's. It is like right. McDonald's. Well, that's where we are now, and you can't fight that. You just have to find a way to. Well, and you're already it. writing wonderful short stories, very heavily focused on dialogue and not special effects, so you're, yeah. you're set to go. Almost. I mean, it, film is really different than theater still. You know, yes. it's, it's image you know, making it, um, our company has some opportunities to do, you know, fiction, comedic, short films, but um, a lot of our work is with performing artists or corporations. The corporations pay for the artists. Yeah, you have a client list that's mm-hmm. very uh, diverse. I mean, you have the Swedish consulate, you have Josh Kornbluth, you have uh, uh, several... Uh, check com- me out. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. check you out, baby. Yeah, we've done everything from naked men dripping wax on each other for 20 minutes in a right masochistic fringe festival show <laughs> <laughs> to um, a corporate CEO who, you know, is Drip playing wax with... on people. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> I've worked with corporations. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is very surreal. We'll go to Silicon Valley <laughs> and we will get paid, literally, 10 to 15 times what we get paid for doing exactly the same work for the performing arts in the same day, maybe. <laughs> and everyone's getting value, though. The CEO is getting exactly what he needs. Cost is really not the factor. It's that they need to look good, and you need to help them look good. You know? Fascinating. Yeah. And it's, uh, now, I know you uh, you did a podcast recently, Zeke Pod. You want to tell us Deek about Pod. that? Deke Pod. Deke Pod. Deke Pod. It's a, it's a, it's a, Positive story and a negative story. We met Deke. Um, let's see. Deke McClellan, he's one of the top Photoshop teachers in the world. He has 80 books. Um, he's a really, he's a cool guy. He came over one afternoon just to meet us. And we said, you know, come on, let's, we'll just record one of these things. And we had, we talked to him on the phone. He wanted to have a podcast basically as, as a way to drive traffic to his website and sell his books. And he was going to give a little tip, a little Photoshop tip. So we did some research, and we saw how is computer training done on the web now. And it's hysterically bad. <laughs> Basically, what you'll see is a, um, a screen shot. And you'll see a little cursor. And some guy will drone on without editing, you know. You know file, and just as much time is spent on file, save, navigate to the directory, and saving a file as the kernel little piece of truth they're actually trying to teach you, you know, like how to, in, in the case of, the, of DeekPod, how to scan money in Photoshop. Fabulous. So, so we decided our podcast was going to be all about the person and the character they create, and the education was you know, going to be as minimal and as fast as possible. So we ended up with a five-minute podcast, um, which was too long. It really should have been three minutes, but that's as much as we could do, as, as far as we could push our client. Um, it's 
all about Deke. We created a character. We actually um, sped him up quite a bit. By how much? 15, 20%. <laughs> without changing the pitch. You know, we, we digitally resampled the sound and we sped up the video. Um, and then we, we, anytime we did show a screenshot, we cut out sections. You know, you just see the little moments that you need. Mm-hmm. And we created a, a sort of um, ironic distance between the still photos that we show and what he's saying, which was supposed to engage the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about scanning money with Photoshop. Something, if you start looking at artwork, commercial artwork, you'll see there's lots of images of money. That's it's true. a common image. But you can't do it in Photoshop straight away because they're so afraid that it'll be used for, for counterfeiting and we'll get in trouble. They put in software which actually recognizes currency. And so Deke was giving this tiny little tip how to get around that, you know. Fantastic. So the, the sad thing is we spent a tremendous amount of post-production time on it and we did get some sponsors for it, but we never got enough sponsorship because we didn't have somebody to go out and sell it um, to support it for subsequent versions. Oh. Deke has signed on with lynda.com, the giant training no. place, which does training of move the cursor, file, you know, the really boring thing. yeah. They promised to produce some deep pods for him. Oh. So we will have, for the first time, we'll see somebody try to reverse engineer our creative effort. <laughs> 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 it should be quite interesting. Destroy it yourself <laughs> instead of do it yourself. I'm skeptical. I, I can't that, wait to um, see what the, uh, the upshot of that yeah. is. Now, um, you have a play that you were working on for the Magic Theater. Is mm. that correct? That is true. Can you share anything about or that? not working on? Or <laughs> um, yeah, I can. So the Magic Theater here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. one of the premier places for new works. They only do new works. Yes, That's it. Um, they have this three-year grant from the Sloan Foundation, many thousands of dollars, and it's for writing plays which have to do with technology somehow, science, science, technology, and theater, something like that. Well, um, a lot of people applied for these grants. I applied, and I made it really high up with this proposal and I did not make the finals and um, they took a bunch of us who didn't make the finals and instead of giving out I don't know like four grants they give out three and they took the money for the last grant and they split it up among six people who were finalists but didn't get the grant and so we got little tiny grants one six of it and we have to write seven minute plays I don't know how they chose that oh my goodness seven minute plays on nanotechnology and it's a combined effort with the Exploratorium, the Science Museum in mm-hmm. San Francisco. And we've had a great time. We've gone to the Exploratorium, and we've gone to lectures and met with our scientists and gone to a nanotechnology education forum in the Presidio. And um, you know, we're all writing little plays. They are supposedly going to do some uh, production of three of them as streaming video casts. Fantastic. We'll have so. to come back and uh, be on the show again once that is up, and we can hear all about that. Before we sure. go, will you uh, tell us your web address so people can find you? Oh, you can find Flying Moose Pictures, www.moosepix.com, spelled M-O-O-S-E-P-I-X.com. And Angst Ensemble? Yeah, not, not such an active group at the moment, but uh, angstensemble.com. Um, we haven't been producing plays. I do... I have a writing group that meets at our studio, mm-hmm. and we do some some readings there. That's kind of what the Angst Ensemble is doing now. Oh, um, very cool. I found that the most compatible thing for me and all my other activities is to work on new works, new short works, and work with writers and direct them in that. And, um, 
Now, I have to ask you a question that we see everywhere on television and magazines. Since we are talking of digital technology and you are receiving this, listeners, as a, as a podcast, what is on your iPod right now, Jonathan? What music are you listening to? My iPod, which is more our iPod since we have one iPod that belongs to the company. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> You know, there's not much music. There's a lot of short videos. Right on. Um, our own videos, and then stuff that we download to look at and study. So, What were you watching this past week? Uh, not on the iPod. Let's see. Oh, probably some stupid YouTube thing. <laughs> you know? There was a really good YouTube Just like thing. the rest Diet of Coke us. And yeah. <laughs> no, amazing. actually, you know, I know that Diet Coke and Mempo, Mentos Trish, folks. Um, what was the sneezing panda. No. You know what? Did you see this one? It was um, this young blonde singer lady, and she's in a recording studio, and it's YouTube, so you can't make out the images that well, right? And so she's speaking apparently into the microphone, and she's going, you know, testing, testing, and she's talking about, I'm made for this. You know, she says, I, I was born for this day to record this song and all that. <laughs> and the, apparently the guy in the booth keeps asking her for a sound check, and it's not working. And he comes into the screen. And he spins the microphone around. She's been talking into the, the metal. You know, she hasn't been talking into the yeah. microphone. She's been talking into the counterweight. And, and, it, and this microphone spins into view. It's very good. That's fabulous. That's beautiful. Well, thanks. Today we have enjoyed the company of Jonathan Luskin, our guest. Sitting in has been Dan Wilson, Christopher DeYoung, and Trish Tillman. Check back next time for more studio interviews. This has been a Cassandra's Call production.